Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on October 27th, 2020, honoring the work of Deborah Paredes, a poet and associate professor of professional practice in writing at Columbia University's School of the Arts. In 2020, Professor Paredes published her second collection of poetry, Year of the Dog, whose title refers to the year 1970, which was the year she was born and the year her father, a Mexican-American immigrant, prepared to deploy to the Vietnam War. The title Year of the Dog also evokes the mythic queen Hecuba, whose unending grief over the atrocities of the Trojan War led to her transformation into a howling dog. Paredes's poems draw on multiple traditions of women's mourning to frame a history of the Vietnam War, social upheaval in the 1970s United States, and her own family. Alongside her poems, Paredes mixes iconic photographs with her father's own wartime snapshots in order to explore the ethical demands placed on witnesses of violence to preserve memory. We will first hear Professor Paredes describe Year of the Dog and read a few of the poems from the collection. Afterward, we will hear her in conversation with Sidia Hartman, a professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia. I'll talk just a little bit about the book and then I'll read a few poems from it. Um, so the book is titled Year of the Dog, which um, refers to two different things uh, for me. The first of which is the year 1970, which was the year of the metal dog in the lunar calendar. It was the year of my birth and the year my father was preparing to be deployed um, to Vietnam uh, along with many others like him. He's a Mexican immigrant who received his citizenship papers pretty much at the same time as his draft notice and um, strategically so. And so um, uh, the, the book looks very much at this particular historical moment, the year 1970 and the years surrounding it. But it also for me evokes the figure of Hecuba, the former, the queen of Troy, as we recall, who um, after she was taken by the Greeks after the war was over and was taken with the other women to be slaves to the Greeks, she would not stop howling, right, at the horrors of war. Um, and she howled and she howled until she was transformed into a dog. And she leapt from the ship where she was being taken back to Greece to escape captivity and spent the rest of her days on an island as a dog howling, right, and howling. And this idea of being so wedded to one's grief, one's madness, right, that we're transformed from the human. Um, I wanted this book to take part in that tradition of feminist elegy among othered women, right, among the women deemed the enemy or um, the abject. And so I was interested in thinking about both a historical moment, but a kind of larger tradition of this kind of dark women's elegy, uh, feminist elegy, and um, thinking through what that means. And I was also interested thinking temporally about the fact that I finished the year, I finished the book in the year of 2018, which was also a year of the dog. I didn't realize it at the time. But by the time I was finishing it in May of 2018, that year had already marked the, the year in the United States in which we had experienced the highest number of school shootings in the nation's history. And so for me, it was also a book I wanted to be big enough to hold that unending history of, of, of war and violence. The book includes in it a series of um, images, uh, some of which I think uh, are very familiar to some folks, 
the, the war in Vietnam, as many of us know, is known for its documentation, right? It was the year in which, it was a war in which uh, photographers had unrestricted access to combat and very much was changed by embedded the practice of embedded photography in the wars since then. But what that meant is it's a war that we often have known or an era we often know whether we live through it or not through the photographic images of the era. And many folks have written very smartly about this. But what's interesting to me was thinking about the ways in which despite this sort of overabundance of documentation, Latinx communities in particular remain um, undocumented, right? And this idea of documentation with regards to Latinx subjects, I think is, is you know, we've, we've been overdetermined in some ways by our relationship to documentation. Do you have your papers? Do you not? What does that mean for you? And so I was interested in really tackling notions of documentation. So I collaged some very iconic photos with the archive of snapshots my father took while he was in Vietnam. So I'll begin um, by reading a poem that's actually um, the first poem in the book. It uh, evokes one of these mythic women that I refer to. Um, mythic women and historical women populate this book in addition to my father's story. And this one's a retelling of the story of Lot's wife. Uh, and I thought, you know, what, what does it mean if we regard her story as one that's not about clinging out of avarice or out of longing to the material world, but what if she stands and lingers and loiters uh, as a way of refusing to look away from disaster? You know, I've been really interested in the poetical and political positioning of loitering. So here's Lot's wife speaking. Wife's disaster manual. When the forsaken city starts to burn, after the men and children have fled, stand still, silent as prey, and slowly turn back. Behold the curse. Stay and mourn the collapsing doorways, the unbroken bread in the forsaken city starting to burn. Don't flinch, don't join in. Resist the righteous scurry and instead stand still, silent as prey. Slowly turn your thoughts away from escape. The iron gates unlatched, the responsibilities shed. When the forsaken city starts to burn, surrender to your calling. Show concern for those who remain. Come to a dead standstill. Silent as prey, slowly turn into something essential. Learn the names of the fallen. Refuse to run ahead. When the forsaken city starts to burn, stand still and silent. Pray, return. So I'll read now a poem called A Show of Hands, which um, throughout the book, just as I'm trying to estrange us from our, the ways we've been inured to seeing these um, photos, that have become so familiar to us. Um, I wanted to reacquaint us with the kind of horrors that we find of violence that we find in our everyday language. And so I tried to take what I found to be the most banal forms of language, which was the idiom, and to use idioms in particular that in contained parts of the body. So here we go. A show of hands. My father taught me never to show my hand. Always play the hand you're dealt. Don't bite the hand that feeds. You gotta hand it to him. He lived his life hand to mouth. Even before Nam, he knew close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades go hand to hand combat. Idle hands are the devil's play into the enemy's 
handed over and out of his hands, ringing a bird in hand, is worth two. In the bush, he wasn't so good with his hands, took his life into his own blood on his hands, on the one hand and on the other. I also use some of the captions that I've, portions of the captions I found on the backs of my father's photo. So this one says, here is another shot. And then at the bottom, the one on the bottom says, so you can imagine. And that precedes the following poem, which is called Lightning. And it was a poem written, it takes place actually in December, December 4th, 1969 in Chicago, Illinois, which many of you will recall was the day of the murder of Fred Hampton. And um, when Fred Hampton was murdered by the state, um, his partner at the time, Deborah Johnson, now Akura Najeri, was um, present with him and was eight and a half months pregnant. And so this poem is for Deborah Johnson, Akua Najeri. Lightning. You didn't look down or back. Spent the fractured minutes studying each crease and curve of the law men's faces. So later you could tell how it happened. How you crossed over his body. How you kept your hands up. How you didn't reach for anything, not your opened robe, nothing. How they said he's good and dead. How you crossed over the threshold, how you lifted one and then the other slippered foot across the ice. How you kept yourself from falling. How your bared belly bore the revolver's burrowing snout. How, how, how when the baby starts to descend, it's called lightning, though it feels like a weight you cannot bear. Lightning is when you know it won't be long before it's over. And then I'll read one last poem that takes place actually in uh, another year of the dog, the year 1982, the year that the um, Vietnam Veterans Memorial was being erected, had been designed and erected. Um, it was designed by Maya Lin. And this poem includes an epigraph by Maya Lin. The, the epigraph is, the wall dematerializes as a form and allows the name to become the object. Year of the Dog, Walls and Mirrors, Fall 1982. The English translation of my surname is Walls, misspelled. The original S turned to its mirrored twin, the Z, the beginning of the sound for sleep. I'm nearly 12, and the mirror is a disaster I learn to turn away from. The girl looking back, always looking to extract her pound of flesh. I had a simple impulse to cut into the earth Maya Lin is writing as the mirrored wall of names she's made is arranged and laid against the riven hillside. I never looked at the memorial as a wall, she writes, but as an edge to the earth, an opened side. For a wall to become a mirror, it must not absorb or scatter too much light. For a girl to become the protagonist, she must sleep with the guy or until he kisses her awake. Sometimes we know she's the fairest one of all because of the mirror on the wall. Sometimes she must scale the city's walls to bury the guy. Antigone cuts into the earth to give him his proper memorial. She ends up the heroine and buried alive. An in-between thing like someone who's 11 or nearly 12. 
When I look at the number 11, I see two walls, my name and its mirrored twin. Sometimes 11 resembles the mirrored L's at the end of wall or the beginning of llanto, the Spanish word for weeping. Sometimes 11 looks like a pair of railway sleepers arranged and laid along a track that's always leading me back to my war-worn father. Sometimes the guy comes back from battle and has seizures in his sleep and the girl must shake him awake. Sometimes the wall and the name are one and the same. Sometimes the wall is where we end up to begin letting go our yanto. Thank you very much. Next, we will hear Professor Paredes in conversation with Sadia Hartman, a professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia and a 2019 MacArthur Fellow. Professor Hartman's scholarship uses the tools of imaginative fiction and theory to fill in gaps in the historical record, such as the archival records of transatlantic slavery, where the voices of Black women are missing. Professors Hartman and Paredes begin by discussing the tradition of elegiac poetry in Year of the Dog. They also talk about the way the book mixes famous images with family photos and switches between different speech registers, as well as the demands that these juxtapositions place on the reader. At the end, Professor Paredes will read one final poem from the collection. So it's a it's a pleasure to be here today. And I just want to start off really thanking Deborah for giving us this beautiful work, Year of the Dog, which basically is a container that helps us to hold what can't be born, all, um, all the grief, all the grief that is ongoing, seemingly um, interminable. So I just really wanted to engage Deborah about the books and my approach to the work, not a poet, is really to think about, um, you know, the critical poetics that are a part of Year of the of the dog. I mean, it is a book that is very close to me. There's Hecuba, the howling, barking woman. Um, and my own critical labors, I've always thought of myself as a whaler. So we are sisters in this wailing and in this howling. But so I just wanted to start off, uh, Deborah, asking you to address lament, elegy, and complaint and the, the aesthetic and ethical dimensions and requirements of those forms. I mean, I think that one of my, you know, favorite quotes from, you know, an 18th century enslaved African is Otaba Kuguano, who has this lovely phrase about the voice of our complaint still resounding because the injustices are so great. We feel you know, those kind of reverberations across time. And certainly one of the achievements of Year of the Dog is actually being able to put um, a number of these moments and events um, in conversation, both the Imperial War, that is, you know, Vietnam or the War of the Gulf and the kind of undeclared war that is the state of existence, you know, that defines our anti-Black context. So if you would just begin, you know, talking about com complaint, lament, elegy, their kind of ethical and aesthetic dimensions, requirements. It's interesting because I remember having a conversation with you, I think when I was writing the book, 
this idea, and I think I was talking about writing, I, I think I was in the process of writing the sonnet, self-portrait with um, weeping women or something. I was in this process of writing this and uh, thinking about Hecuba, and you said something like, well, you know, of course you would be interested in that. I mean, Yorona, you know, you said something about like, oh, of course, Yorona. And I actually, until you said that, I had kind of often, I just like almost forgotten, right? That growing up as a Mexican-American woman, you know, in the Southwest, that the story of La Llorona, right, is so much a part of our of our upbringing, you know, often told as a cautionary tale, but again, as I'm interested in rethinking, what does it mean that a weeping woman is absolutely a part of your worldview and of your world making? And so for me, you know, when I think about, El and, the, and that that is the way by which we move through the world, right, was, is in relation to, a, to, to this weeping woman and how can we, you know, as, as, you know, or how can I as a brown woman understand that as that, relationship to elegy just as much as I've understood the various other traditions from which I've I've learned it whether you know whether it's about Euripides or whether it's Clifton and I think for me getting at the ethical dimensions you know the, the my students are always asking me well how do you, you know how do you do this work without being appropriative and you know and all that kind of stuff and and for me I feel like if I think about Writing the poems that I did, especially to to Akuri Najeri, to Angela Davis, to Kim Fook, I had to imagine them as like for first and foremost like love letters. Like for me, that like going to the point of how do I express a deep sense of love and gratitude, right, to to these women who made a space for standing and not moving against, you know, like the thinking about Deborah Johnson repeating that the, the 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 platform in her head to kind of be able to stand still to look into the face of what happened so that she could tell it later that that to me there's a I mean I'm not quite getting at the ethical dimensions but I think about you know or thinking going back to Brooks thinking about like what does it mean to to just sort of take up the space of the criminalized the criminalized posture right of loitering and how that is the place we have to go to do the work of of grief, you know, of grieving, of, of of grieving in the face of of wherein wherein not only is our grief like discounted, but the very bodies that you know, or the very people, the very communities, the very catastrophes that we are grieving are are, are not even accounted for. I don't feel like I'm getting at the ethical stuff there, but I feel like for me, you know, to go back to Clifton, and I've said this many times, but I really believe it when she writes in the in her poem Jasper Texas about you know who's the human here, the dragger or the dragged. And I do believe like interrogating, like what is the, what, you know, to, that, that we need to go past the idea of what is human, right? And, and of course, within the field of blackness, this has always been a concern, but like where, if we go to the space where we say the how, 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 right? You know, my, my saying that in that poem is echoing Clifton saying why and why and why, you know, do I call a white man brother? You know, that there's something about poetry being able to like, let me dwell on those words or something about that, that I think poetry can get at with regards to the elegy. Anyway, I can go back to that. Yeah. I feel like it wasn't sufficient, but we're, we'll, I'll get there. No, no, no. I mean, I think um, maybe it's hard to answer because it's everywhere apparent. And I um, think uh, particularly when we think about the, the visual construction of the book, the relationship between image and text and it, you know, one of the things that um, I think about, I mean, you have a poem that's uh, called what, um, Synonyms for Aperture, but in a way the whole book itself gives us a variety of synonyms 
for Aperture because the book itself is so much about looking how we see and then um, what is demanded of the, the reader and the looker at these kind of, you know, these textual image uh, assemblages. And it seems that there is a certain set of kind of like ethical demands of the reader viewer around, you know, we have your father's text, you know, about what is it that we can imagine. And certainly it seems that the ekphrastic poems of the book are revisiting these, you know, some images which are iconic to actually fully articulate what the stakes of this moment are that, so that it's not simply about a memorial poem that is trying to narrate a moment in time as much as there's a certain set of demands that you make of the reader through that ekphrastic expansion and transformation of the image? Yeah, I very much, thank you so much for anchoring me a bit in this idea of looking, right? Because of course, you know, there is so much I think I'm, I am trying to get at around the ways that we've become manured, right? Through the technologies of looking, whether it is the photograph, you know, of, uh, from Vietnam, whether it is the, the, the videotape, right? Of the annihilated black body in recent years, right? That, that, you know, I want us to interrogate, right? And to, you know, both to interrogate our, the ways that we're conditioned to look, you know, often pornographically, um, and also to find other ways of looking, right? That can be about truly honoring what has been lost, right? Or honoring those who look in ways that don't encourage that particular uh, regime, right, of looking. And, you know, obviously influenced by folks like Butler and Sontag and others who've talked about that. But even thinking about your, you know, when I think about the work of documentary poetry, right, which is interested in thinking, you know, both um, responsively and speculatively in relation to the document, you know, I think that part of what's so revelatory and why so many of us have been informed by your own work is how do we then, when we're engaging in those particular archives of those particular moments of catastrophe, which are ongoing, right? You know, it's sort of a constant state of emergency for us. How then we move to the speculative um, that may be beyond sight or looking or, or is about feeling, you know, how do we capture other kinds of textures of the life that cannot be accounted for by the visual regimes, right? I think is is somehow where I think the speculative might come in, both in documentary poetry and certainly where it comes in in, in your work that, that has been very useful for me to think through. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think of your incorporation of these like other moments. I mean, you mentioned Deborah Johnson and Angela Davis as at all appropriative because it seems that, you know, in thinking about women the way we experience war. It's also about expanding our understanding of what constitutes war, right? So that's um, so that's one aspect of it. And I guess I was I wanted you to kind of think about the relationship between the iconic and the non-iconic image because I wonder for most readers, like, oh, did they know who Deborah Johnson or Akut Nigera was? So there's that with the alongside the images of Marianne. Vecchio and Kem Fook. So that's one set of questions. And then the other is also about these, you know, distinct registers of language. And maybe in the wailing, barking grief beast, there's something that almost feels like the register of, you know, it's in the, the register of the tragic. And it feels 
operatic in its breadth and scope. And then there's just the kind of ordinary old idiomatic stuff. So can you just talk about the drama that you, you know, you stage in the book by working across those registers? Absolutely. So your first question was around iconicity, right? Around the and and then the very but putting you know just like these iconic images, but then the Jackson State photos. I mean, many of those photos I saw for the first time in your books. So what does it mean to? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that in some ways, right, the book relies on the the iconic, right, as a you know, or, or it gestures toward it again, just in these slivers. So that when I'm pulling up, right, because Jackson State, even as even if we might not have seen the photos, like there's for certain, you know, folks, um, that history is very much, you know, a part of the remembrance of that era. But putting I wanted the book to be capacious enough to to hold both our re or our, our, our kind of a revisioning of the iconic and to hold, and not in a kind of additive way, right, or not in a and, and to hold a space for acknowledging all the ways by which others have has see see and experienced right that moment whether it's my father's perspective in his you know taking pictures of the landscape or whatever it was or whether it was accounting for women who were even in the midst of their encountering more you know even as Angela Davis is awaiting extradition right what is she you know what is she doing she's remembering the names of all the women who were also in there with them so that she can write them down right that there's a way that I wanted to account for, to not do it in a way that was just, oh, a kind of additive model or a kind of um, like, oh, this is this there so that this can fight against it, but wanting to kind of hold, to do both those works in both ways. And so again, you know, part of, you know, I, I, I have attention in, even in my own approach to the book because part of me wanted it to be all how and total inscrutability and just, you know, what would it be like if it was just like, I think about the opening to Nobesi Phillips song, like what if it's just wah, 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 you know, uh, and the particular power of that. And yet I'm also like, I'm just a geeked out neo-formalist, right? On some level too. <laughs> and so there was also wanting to then deal with structure and form and frame in a way that also that that you know by putting the everyday wanting to figure out okay well how what happens if we put if we put the everyday in here you know and if in fact the everyday becomes the very space where the operatic can live you know even you know and so i think that that tension is also about my own tension that i have but also again about wanting it to be really big like wanting it to be big enough right to hold the various modes of speaking uh, that are at once about the kind of ratchet, you know, ratchet growl and teeth and all of that, but also wanting there to be, you got to hand it to him, and having that particular language be also the language of our of our operas, right? You know, and whether or not it succeeds in moments or not, I mean, it's not my, you know, I have no idea, but that was the attempt anyway. So this poem is the uh, second to last poem in the book, and it's a sonnet called "Self Portrait in the Time of Disaster." I did not know that it would be published in a moment of this particular kind of disaster. All morning, my daughter pleading, outside, outside. By noon, I kneel to button her coat, tie the scarf to keep her hood in place. This is her first snow, so she strains against the ritual, spooked silent, then whining, restless under each buffeting layer. Uncertain, 
how to settle into this leashing. I manage at last to tunnel her hands into mittens and she barks and won't stop barking. Her hands suddenly pause. She's reduced to another state, barking all day in these restraints. For days after, she howls into her hands, the only way she knows now to tell me how she wants out. Thank you all so very much. It's been such an honor to be in conversation with you all and to be it's sort of dwelling together in this moment with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Deborah Paredes's book, Year of the Dog. We hope you'll join us next time for more new book events from fall 2020. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.